0: Hi, I'm Evan Wyndham from the Bullock Texas State History Museum in Austin, Texas. Welcome to the fourth episode in our podcast, a recount of my deep dive into the history of the legendary guitarist Stevie Ray Vaughan. We're glad you've joined us. In the last episode, We surveyed the Austin music scene of the 1970s and learned how a club called Antones became a school for blues, where young musicians learned their craft and grew as performers on stage alongside their heroes. Stevie Ray took advantage of opportunities provided by club owners, like Clifford Antone, and music legends like Albert King. And, bit by bit, Double Trouble built up a following in Texas playing night after night in clubs, honing their unique sound in front of rapt, if often modest, audiences. But the blues revival of the 70s had yet to make a break into national recognition. So, despite a local revival in interest, I wouldn't have predicted that any blues band, even Double Trouble, could somehow break onto the international music scene. But in 1982, the band was offered a unique opportunity, one that would define the future of the band and inject the Texas blues into the pop charts. It started with an invitation from an old friend to play a record release party. Double Troubles drummer Chris Layton told me how it came to pass.
1: Lou Ann Barton got a record deal with Elektra and Jerry Wexler produced it. And he's another iconic American music person. Atlantic Records. He could give you a long list of people he was involved with. When her record was to debut, she called us up and said, you guys want to play my record release party? And we're like, yeah, we didn't have a record. We had nothing. Jerry Wexler came as part of the whole festivities and he loved the band. He said, you guys need to be playing at the Montreux Music Festival in Switzerland. And he made the call to a guy, Claude Knobs And Claude said, Jerry, if you, if you say so, then they're on.
0: Before I heard that story from Chris, I'd stumbled across video of the band's July 1982 performance at the festival. And, well, I thought I heard something strange after the band finished its final number. Thank you very much. Thank you. I, see I asked bassist Tommy Shannon to confirm my suspicions.
2: Well, we were in Switzerland, and uh, it's the first night we ever got booed. We got booed.
0: Now, their performance is great. The band is on fire. But the night they were booked to play, the bill was full of acoustic acts. And when a virtually unknown, highly amplified, and house rock and blues band from Texas took the stage, what they delivered was more than a little outside the crowd's expectations. But there were at least two people in attendance that night who were blown away. American singer-songwriter Jackson Brown and a certain British rock star. Chris Layton painted the scene for me.
1: We did the show in the audience that night was David Bowie, who loved the band. As he said, I love you guys. Stevie, you're wonderful. I'm doing a project in the fall. I'm doing a new record. It's going to be an R&B record. He said, I'd love you guys to go on tour after the record's done. And Stevie, I'd love you to play on the record. It was all kind of surreal. You know, a a lot of things came out of that.
0: Jackson Brown had made a name for himself as a premier singer-songwriter in the style of country-infused rock coming out of L.A. in the early 70s. And before Double Trouble left Montreux, Brown made a generous offer.
1: We met Jackson Brown the next night. He gave us his studio to record anytime we wanted to in L.A. We went out there and we made these tapes for what reason we didn't know other than we could.
0: Over the Thanksgiving holiday of 1982, the band holed up in Brown's studio, playing their live set and recording the master tapes, which would eventually become their first album, Texas Flood. But during the recording sessions, Stevie was awakened by a call in the middle of the night. David Bowie had tracked him down to make an official offer, inviting Stevie to play on his next album, Let's Dance. Stevie seemed set to hitch a ride to pop stardom. Texas music writer Joe Nick Potoski gave me the backstory.
3: Before they really launched the tour, there's recordings to do, and Stevie plays on Bowie's album. This is kind of a big deal. He's got this unknown blues kid from Texas on it, and the first single off his album is a tune called Let's Dance. It's very much of a dance rock number that's very indicative of that late 70s, early 80s era. But in the middle of that song, there is a guitar break. It's almost an outlier because it's so unlike everything else structurally in that song. There's that Texas blues guitar coming through. That's Stevie.
0: A personal interjection here. Let's Dance has long been one of my favorite songs. The guitar breaks are killer, and the solo at the end of the song slices through the rich pop production. All these years, I had no idea it was Stevie Ray playing those riffs. But back to our story. Stevie was preparing to go on tour with Bowie.
3: That record shoots number one on the pop charts. Stevie Vaughan, all of a sudden, is a made man. He's going on tour. He's part of Bowie's
0: band. What about his band though? And Tommy told me what happened next.
2: David Boy wanted to travel for a year on the road. Stevie said, Okay, but can my band open? And David Boy said, Yeah. Management, record company, and everything wanted Stevie to do this. You know, he's really pushed in doing it. So he was rehearsing with them. They had this ramp coming down. Stevie was supposed to come dancing down that that's the furthest thing from Stevie, he just couldn't dance, so every time he'd come walking down, that the night before he was supposed to leave, he couldn't do it. He wasn't playing what he loved, which was blues, rock. So he blew that off and went back playing with us.
0: Okay, that was a twist I hadn't expected. I asked Joe Nick to fill me in on the reaction back in Austin. The town was watching with great interest as the band teetered on the brink of fame and fortune.
3: Now, Double Trouble got a little bit of buzz after that Montreux Club gig. Jackson Brown's issued this invitation, but this is David Bowie, and he's going on on a global tour of arenas. This is not club land or even theaters. This is big rock and roll. And he wants Stevie Vaughn to be his guitarist. Great. And then, (laughs) against everybody's advice... He said, screw this. I'm going to go do my own band. I'm going to do my own thing. And I remember when that happened, just like, is he crazy? It's not shooting yourself in the foot. You shot yourself in the head. And there really was that feeling around Austin. It's like, God. You know, he had the world in the palm of his hand. He had David Bowie pining after him, and he blew that off because he's going to go off on his own. People thought this was crazy.
0: Stevie had turned his back on a world tour and all the pop star trimmings to play small clubs and far-flung roadhouses. Tommy expanded on the life of the band post-Bowie.
2: At the time, we, ha- we weren't successful. we travel around the country in a milk truck. No windows on the side. Had a bed rigged on the, up above. Every time we hit the brakes, of the bed it would go, bam, forward. Take off, it would go backward. Under that was all of our gear, That's how we traveled around, carried our own gear. But Stevie went back to that because he was so de- devoted to his music. He just couldn't go out with David Bowie, you know. He just kind of broke down you know, and said, I can't do it. So I have a lot of respect for Stevie from that.
0: But all was not lost. The band had the tapes from the Jackson Brown Studio recordings. And when double trouble was noticed by a certain famous musicologist and producer, they were prepared to take advantage of the opportunity. Here's Chris.
1: We came to the attention of John Hammond, who was legendary in in American music, in that he either produced or he signed so many different people from Count Basie to Bob Dylan to Aretha Franklin, Bruce Springsteen. I mean, and this list went on and on. His actual son gave him a tape of us from Steamboat Springs, and he went. I love this because I've never heard anybody like this guy. And he, I love these guys. And so we went. Wow, John Hammond likes us. And he said, Oh, I'll call, I'll call CBS, and I got a friend there, and he'll give you a deal. Greg Geller, and he signed the band right up.
0: Soon after signing with Epic Records, the band released their first album, Texas Flood, in June of 1983. The album contains the band's signature mix of styles: the Texas shuffle of Pride and Joy, the rockabilly influenced Rude Mood and the jazzy tones of Lenny, written by Stevie Ray for his wife. But they titled the album after their cover of a 1958 hit by legendary Texas guitarist Larry Davis. The album hit the street, and the results were nearly instantaneous. Here's Tommy.
2: We toured all over the country in our milk truck. There's this club in California, I can't remember the name of it, but we played there, and there'd be maybe 50 people there, something like that. We came back there after Texas Flood came out, and there was a line all the way around the block. Our first instinct was, who else is playing here? Who are we opening for? And then we realized it was for us. We knew then something good was happening.
0: From Austin, Joe Nick was watching and taking notice.
2: All of a sudden that record just shot up the
3: charts. And you'd hear it everywhere. People were talking about the blues being revived. And here's the guy that's doing it. And he was getting the double accolades of being, this guy plays real blues. This guy plays Hendrix better than anyone since Hendrix. You know, this was a wicked combination. Stevie, all of a sudden, shot past everybody, including his brother and the fabulous Thunderbirds. He was the biggest act in Austin. He was the biggest act in Texas. He was the biggest blues act in the world. In
2: 1983,
0: an Austin City Limits TV performance broadcast the band to a national audience. And then... The album's title song, Texas Flood, was nominated for a 1984 Grammy Award as the Best Traditional Blues Performance, a category created only the year before. The tune, Rude Mood, was nominated as a Best Rock Instrumental, and the traditional blues community was also paying respect. The 1984 W.C. Handy Awards recognized Stevie Ray as Entertainer of the Year and Instrumentalist of the Year. Crowds got bigger and the demand for touring greater. The blues had cracked the pop charts in the U.S. and was holding its own in the heart of an era known famously today for new wave bands and as the dawn of the age of rap and hip-hop. Stevie Ray Vaughan and Double Trouble produced a quick succession of follow-up albums, Couldn't Stand the Weather and Soul to Soul, and the original power trio expanded to include keyboardist Reese Wynans, adding new sonic possibilities to their live performances. As a fearsome foursome... They returned to the Montreux Festival in 1985, where they were received with unqualified adulation and applause. And in the midst of this newfound success, Stevie took the opportunity to shine a light back on the musicians he looked up to. The night of their return engagement, he brought the Houston, Texas guitarist Johnny Copeland to the stage. an old story. A band achieves success rapidly and is challenged to deal with added pressures, new demands. Double Trouble was no exception. But it wasn't just the logistics of managing a popular band that presented challenges. Stevie and Tommy had long struggled with substance abuse. And in 1986, things came to a head on a European tour. Here's Tommy.
2: We were in Germany and Stevie broke down. We were doing so much coke and alcohol for Years and they had to take him to a hospital in London and from there over to the United States. We were just about dead, him and I both. And so when he went, I couldn't take it anymore. So we both got clean and sober and were very dedicated. We went through a 12 step program. You know, we were very close on that too.
0: I asked Tommy what it was like to get back on stage. After the band had gotten sober,
2: well, I was scared to death before we got up there. you know, I hadn't played for a crowd without being high that I could remember. you know I looked out the curtain and saw all those people out there, and I was going, oh, I need a drink, <laughs> but I didn't do it. And all of our playing got better, a lot better. If you listened to instep, the musicianship on that was a giant jump forward for us.
0: The album In Step was released in 1989. Its title referred to the band's newfound sobriety, and it quickly won a Grammy for Best Contemporary Blues Performance. With renewed fire and focus, the band played tighter than ever before, and they accepted an offer to tour with Eric Clapton and Robert Cray. Their albums were selling. Concert venues were packed. The blues was infusing the airways, and all seemed right in the world. And then, in a flash... Stevie Ray was gone.
1: There's been a major blow to the rock music world. A deadly helicopter crash early this morning in Wisconsin. Five people have
2: crossed the been wire that guitarist Stevie Ray Vaughan was on
1: board. Guarded as one of the great blues guitarists of his generation. Helicopter carrying Vaughan crashed moments after liftoff. There were no survivors.
0: I didn't know much about Stevie Ray Vaughan when I started this project, but I was well aware of his untimely death. On August 26, 1990, after performing two shows with Clapton and Cray in East Troy, Wisconsin, the helicopter carrying Stevie and members of Clapton's management team crashed into a foggy hillside, killing everyone on board. Stevie Ray was only 35 years old. Chris shared some of the details of that sad event and the aftermath.
1: Both Clapton and ourselves had rented this um, flight service. It was a crew team of four helicopters. The real simple thing about all of it is that they had a person in their detail that decided to stay back and do some work at the venue after everything was over. So they said, well, let's offer it to Stevie, that spare seat. And so they did, and he took it. And then the helicopter promptly crashed. We found out about it the next morning. We had a, a big meeting. We we're called to our tour manager's suite, and, and everybody was there except Stevie. I thought, band meeting. I go, where's Stevie? That's how we found out. Yeah, it was dumbfounding. I mean, I didn't, I go, That's, that can't be true.
0: The band returned home to Austin in a daze to discover that the whole town was in shock. 10,000 citizens had spontaneously amassed in Zilker Park for a candlelight vigil. How do you even begin to make sense of a tragedy that cuts a promising life short, disrupts careers, and tears a hole in a family? Chris shared his initial reactions and a perspective over years of reflection.
1: I took his death very, very hard. And there was a lot of things that happened after that that um, I, didn't, I didn't respond very well to, because I had felt, I, you know what, honestly, I had felt victimized. But today, I can look back and go, you know what, what a fortunate experience. It's the deal of a lifetime, and I got to be there.
0: The Vaughn Brothers album, Family Style, was released just a month after Stevie's death. It was the brothers' first and last collaboration, and it won two Grammy Awards. Jimmy Vaughn shared how he's dealt with the loss over the last two and a half decades. It's been 27 years since Stevie got killed. And uh,
2: so you got two choices. You can either just go off and and, uh, be sad or you can get back in and enjoy yourself and do the best you can. And so I've done a little bit of both.
0: Without the boost provided by the 1982 Montreux gig, David Bowie's Let's Dance, Jackson Brown's Studio, or John Hammond's Music Industry Connections, I feel confident that Stevie Ray Vaughan would have achieved a significant amount of notoriety. I have to believe that he'd still have been crowned a king amongst the great 20th century guitarists, like Albert King, Jimi Hendrix, and Eric Clapton, to name a few. But those serendipitous meetings with influential figures, like Brown and Bowie, led the band to take advantage of the opportunities laid before them. And the results speak for themselves. Awards, best-selling albums, and a lasting impact on new generations of players and music lovers. Join us next time as we survey Stevie Ray's legacy and the positive influence his personality, his talent, and his music continues to have around the world. The exhibition Pride and Joy, the Texas Blues of Stevie Ray Vaughan, was created by the Grammy Museum in Los Angeles and guest curated by Texas blues legend and Stevie Ray's brother, Jimmy Vaughan. The show runs at the Bullock Museum through July 23rd, 2017. This podcast is a production of the Bullock Texas State History Museum. Learn more at thestoryoftexas.com.